0: you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn to Isaiah chapter 7. Uh, We're going to be skipping around a bunch today uh, because we get to talk about Jesus. We are in a series called Convictions where we're walking through our statement of faith. And in part two today, we're talking about what we believe about Jesus Christ. Out at the Connection Center, we have a copy of our statement of faith. If you didn't get a chance to be with us Last week, man, just feel free to snag one on your way out, uh, or if you're watching with us online, you can go to citychurchob.com, uh, and under the New Here tab, uh, you can find our Statement of Faith, actually under About Us, um, so make sure that you have access to that as well. But we're journeying through for eight weeks, or excuse me, for 10 weeks, through our Statement of Faith, through each of these statements, what do we believe about Bible what do we believe about God what do we believe today about Jesus we think it's important to sometimes go back to the basics to go back to the foundation, to go back to the essence of what we believe. And so today, I get to talk about what is probably my favorite topic, uh, about the thing that, that is so dear to my heart and I hope dear to your heart. If you are a believer, if you wear the name of Jesus, then this is something you should get fired up for us to talk about. We get to talk about Jesus today. Now, obviously, we talk about Jesus every week in some capacity. We worship Jesus every week, but today we get to make it very explicit. Uh, And so remember what we said last week, that what we believe matters because when we have misbelief, we can miss God. What we believe matters, what we teach matters, what we communicate to a lost, broken, hurting world matters because when we have misbelief, we can miss God. We, we, we live in a culture and a generation where this word misinformation is really big right now. And, and there is a lot of misinformation right now from a lot of different sources, right? There's Man, if, if you follow politics, I'm a big believer that there's a lot of misinformation from both sides, uh, that, that there's a lot of dishonesty in, in a lot of different directions. And so as the church, we have the truth. We have the truth of eternity. We have the truth of life. And it's so important for us to communicate that truth, to let the truth out. And so why what we believe matters is because if we have misbelief, if we communicate misbelief, we can actually cause people to miss God. And so we want to be careful about our doctrine. We want to be careful about theology. Those may not be the most exciting words. Those may not be the most, man, fired up. Like We get to go learn about theology today. But it's essential for us to get this stuff down, to get it in our heart, so that we can pass it on to the next generation. Because, man, the next generation is going to hear a whole lot of stuff that's not truth. They're already hearing a whole lot of stuff that isn't truth. And if we don't have the truth in us, if we're shaky on it, if we're not positive about what we believe or why we believe it, how can we pass it on to them? Kids are smart. They will know if we don't know what we're talking about. They will see right through us. Kids are are inauthenticity detectors. I did youth ministry for a lot of years. Kids can smell fake from a mile away. And so if we don't have this in us, how can we ever give it to another generation? So we've got to get this stuff down. So today, we're going to talk about Jesus, and we are going to be on the gas today. I hope you are ready to take notes a mile a minute. When I was in high school, I had a U.S. history teacher who would just talk for an hour straight, and he wanted us to write down every word he said. And so I got really good at taking notes really fast. Thank God for cursive. I know cursive hasn't been passed on. If you don't know about cursive, you're missing out. Uh, but but without cursive, I would have never survived that U.S. history class. I'm not gonna go quite that fast, and I'm not gonna ask you to write down every word I say, but I do have a lot for you today. So first of all, let's start with our statement of faith. What does it say about Jesus? Here's what we believe about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is co-equal with the Father. Now, both of those things were sort of embedded in what we talked about last week. If you weren't with us last week, we talked about the Trinity. So you can go back and grab that podcast on our website, watch the live stream uh, on our Facebook page if you missed it. Jesus is the Son of God, co-equal with the Father. We're not going to talk much about those two statements today. Jesus was virgin-born, lived a sinless human life, demonstrated his authority through many miracles, Offered himself as the perfect sacrifice for the sins of all people by dying on a cross. He arose from the dead after three days to demonstrate his power over sin and death. He ascended to his father in heaven and he is coming again. He will return someday to earth to reign as king of kings and lord of lords. I want to... very, very briefly go over seven declarations about Jesus in our statement of faith. There's actually nine. First one is Jesus is the Son of God. Second is that he's co-equal with the Father. We talked about those last week. So we're going to set those two aside uh, and, and focus on the other seven very quickly uh, just to make sure that you see biblical evidence for these seven things. This isn't just something that we... we kind of feel like this might be the truth, this is what the Bible declares about our Savior. And if the Bible says it, we believe it. Number one, we're going to do letters for this because then we're going to do numbers later, and I didn't want to have two different sets of numbers. So, A, Jesus was virgin born. Now, growing up, this was one that I thought was kind of less significant, right? Like, what does it matter? If Jesus was born of a virgin, I believe that he lived. I believe he's the son of God. It doesn't really make a difference. Um, well, the Bible is very clear that he was born of a virgin. It goes out of its way multiple times. In fact, there's some references to the book of Matthew chapter 1 uh, at the end of that paragraph. Each of those references in Matthew 1 discusses the, the virgin birth. Um, but understand, this was not just something that was conjured up in the New Testament This was actually prophesied in the Old Testament. Isaiah 7.14 famously says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, the virgin will conceive a child, and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. Man, I love Emmanuel. Emmanuel is God with us, You see, we serve a God who didn't just come to save us, which would be more than enough. We serve a God who wants to be with us. Wow. What an honor. What an amazing truth that he just didn't look down with pity on us and say, I'll show you mercy, which was so much more than we deserved. He said, I love you, and I want to be in your life, and I'm coming to be with you. And in the midst of that declaration, God foretells through the prophet 700 years before the birth of his son that he's coming to a virgin. So again and again, the Bible goes out of its way to tell us that Jesus was born of a virgin. I believe that the reason Jesus had to be born of a virgin is that the human sin nature that's part of all of our DNA is actually passed down from the Father. And so that's why God had to work around that so that Jesus could come and be free from sin and overcome sin for us because he didn't have to inherit the sin nature. Now, the Bible doesn't explicitly say that. So you can take that or leave it. That's my opinion. That's my inference. That's my, my best understanding of why it had to be done this way. You don't have to agree with that. What you do have to agree with if you're a believer and you trust in the Bible is that he was born of a virgin. Right, So for whatever reason, God saw fit that this was the way it had to happen. Perhaps he just wanted to demonstrate that Jesus, the Savior, was going to be born of supernatural means. Perhaps he just wanted to show, hey, this is the first miracle in a litany of miracles that are going to center on this individual. Whatever God's reasoning was, He chose to send Jesus through a virgin, and so we believe in the virgin birth. Amen. Amen. Secondly, be, Jesus lived a sinless life. Our statement of faith declares that Jesus lived a sinless life. Now this again is All throughout scripture, particularly the New Testament, where we can find evidence of this. I'm going to give you two examples very quickly. Hebrews 7.26, talking about Jesus, says this. says, such a high priest truly meets our need. Now, Hebrews is talking about how Jesus fulfills the role of the high priest. The Jewish high priest was the one who would go make sacrifices for the people. The priest is the one who stood between God and man, who bridged the gap, And so Hebrews is teaching us that Jesus came as the ultimate high priest, that we don't need a high priest anymore. You don't have to go confess your sins to somebody sitting in a box because that person sits between you and God. You have direct access to the Father now, right? And so Hebrews is telling us Jesus is the ultimate high priest. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, who is blameless, who is pure, who is set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Now, there was never another high priest that fit those qualifications. Every previous high priest was just like you and me. They were broken. They were fallen. They had to go through a series of rituals and cleansing in order to be qualified to enter into the Holy of Holies once a year to make those sacrifices. But Jesus lived a cleansing life. He lived a sinless life. He lived a holy life, a, a blameless life, a set-apart life, a pure life. And so he has the right to mediate between God and man. He has the right to bridge that gap for us, not just once a year, but for all eternity. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it this way. I love this verse so much. It says, God made him who knew no sin, Jesus the one who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is one of those verses that is so hard to wrap your brain around because I don't feel like the righteousness of God because my mind knows all the unrighteousness in my life. My mind can point to all the ways that I have fallen short of the glory of God. Yet when God looks at me, he doesn't see me. He sees Jesus on me. Jesus is righteousness credited to me. And he says, you are the righteousness of God. Not because I'm a pastor. Because I've believed on Jesus for my salvation. This truth, this promise is for all. All of us who've called on the name of the Lord. Here's what happens. Jesus was held accountable for my sin so that I can receive credit for Jesus' righteousness. My sin was put on him. He got blamed. He was held responsible for every way I would fail, for every way I would fall short, for every commitment I would make to God and then back out on. For every time I would think, nobody's going to know. Nobody's looking. For every time I would fall short, that was pinned on Jesus' shoulders. He was held accountable. He carried the weight of my sin, and that's a lot. But then he carried the weight of the world, the sin of us all. He paid the price, the perfect sacrifice. And because he lived a holy, sinless, blameless life, now that gets applied to my account instead. He paid my debt, but he didn't stop at paying my debt. He then filled my account. I didn't just come back to zero when he paid my debt. All of a sudden, I got an account full of every blessing, of every credit, of everything I could ever need. In fact, Ephesians says, I now have every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Not because of me. Not because of my goodness. Not because I've lived up to his expectations, but because Jesus did. He was held accountable for my sin so that I can receive credit. For Jesus righteousness. See, Jesus worked many miracles. Man, the New Testament is full of story after story of Jesus working miracles. We see him opening the eyes of the blind and healing the lame and lepers, even raising the dead, walking on water, calming the storms, feeding 5,000, right? Like we see him do miracle after miracle after miracle. And then John says... We only wrote down like a little bitty fraction of it. Man, if we'd wrote down everything that Jesus did, we wouldn't even have room in all the books in the world to record it. Jesus was a walking miracle. And here's the good news. Hebrews 13.8 says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever forever. He was a walking miracle then. He's a walking miracle now. He was a God who did the impossible then. He's the God who does the impossible now. And he's the God who will do the impossible forever. I don't have time to go much more in depth on that point, but it will get you fired up when we study the miracles of Jesus. D, Jesus offered himself as the perfect sacrifice for all by dying. On the cross. John says that Jesus told his disciples, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Right? Even though we see the Romans arrest him, even though we see the Jews accuse him and scream, Crucify him, ultimately Jesus was not murdered. Jesus laid down his life. He chose because Jesus always had the power and authority at any moment to have been delivered from that. He could have called down armies of angels. He could have rained down hailstorms or lightning. He could have opened up the earth and swallowed up his enemies. He could have rescued himself a billion different ways. But he loved me too much to do that. He offered himself as the perfect sacrifice for all by dying on a cross. Philippians 2.8 puts it this way says that Jesus, being found in appearance as a man, humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. So in other words, Jesus didn't just die for me. He died for me in one of the most excruciating, painful, miserable, torturous ways possible. He didn't just die this, pain, this painless death, this peaceful death where he breathed his last And went into eternity. He died with nails in his wrists. Thorns in his scalp. Whips had ripped through his back to the point that the Bible says that he was unrecognizable as a human. He suffered all that to pay the price for my sin. To pay the price for my healing. To pay the price for my restoration. He offered himself as the perfect sacrifice. E, statement of faith declares that Jesus rose from the dead. Everything hinges on this. All of it. With no resurrection, there's no Christianity. With no resurrection, there's no hope. With no resurrection, there's no salvation. With no resurrection, there's no future. Everything we believe hangs on these five little words that Jesus rose from the dead. All of it flows out of this. Sometimes you may encounter someone, I, I know I did many times in school, who would be like, well, well, I, I believe I'm a Christian, but, but I don't really believe all that stuff really happened. I think, I think Jonah didn't really get swallowed by a whale. It's just a, it's just a story to teach us some good principles, right? And my question always is this, well, do you, really, do you believe in the resurrection? Do you believe the resurrection is literal or do you believe it's metaphorical? Because if you believe the resurrection is metaphorical, then you got nothing. And if you believe the resurrection happened, then why would you not believe in the whale, right? Like, like if you believe somebody can come back from the dead, then the rest of it seems pretty believable to me, right? Like that's the biggest, hardest thing to wrap your brain around. Like that's the, the greatest stumbling block, the way that 1 the the, Corinthians puts it. Man, that Jesus rose from the dead, that's a hard one to get past, but if you can receive that, if you can believe that in faith, that the Holy Spirit has sparked something in your heart that says yes, I don't understand it all the time. I can't scientifically explain it all the way. But I know this is the truth of existence, that Jesus rose from the dead. Then I can believe that Scripture was handed down accurately. That I can believe that God spoke through men to communicate his message to me. If he can raise Jesus from the dead, then he can do anything he wants to. Jesus rose from the dead. Luke 24 puts it this way. It says, on the very first day of the week, very early in the morning, the woman took the spices they had prepared, and they went into the tomb. They were preparing Jesus' body. They were, they, they were doing these rituals on his dead body. Verse 2, it says, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. By the way, 2,000 years later, they still ain't found the body. Verse 4, while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them in their fright. The women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? Woo! Angel could preach. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you. In Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. In the midst of the pain, in the midst of the trauma, in the midst of the loss of their friend, their leader, their teacher, they forgot what he said. How often do we forget what Jesus said? Man, it's easy to look at those ladies and be like, duh, he told you, right? Like, you idiot. Like, how could you forget? This was just like a week ago. I wonder how many times God looks down at us and he's like, how could you forget? How could you forget what I did? How could you forget what I said? And yet time after time, he extends grace and mercy. And he's the God of second chances and 40 second chances. And I'm so grateful. Jesus rose from the dead. F, Jesus ascended to the Father. John chapter 20, another account of Jesus rising from the dead and actually his first appearance to Mary Magdalene in the garden. Jesus says to her, do not hold on to me, verse 17, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. So he tells her, I'm about to go back to Daddy. i got to go back to heaven. i got to appear to my Father. He says, go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Acts chapter 2 actually records it for us. They're out having a conversation with Jesus, and he tells them to wait on the promise of the Holy Spirit in Acts 1.8. And then in verse 9 it says, After he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. So Jesus physically ascends off the earth. Now, we don't believe that he physically ascended into heaven because heaven isn't a physical place in this universe. But, but he disappeared from their sight. And as he disappeared from their sight, he's taken up into heaven. He ascended into heaven. Why does that matter? Because that's where he is right now. He's not here with us. Excuse me. Uh, he's not here with us. His Holy Spirit is. His Holy Spirit is now the one who's our companion. We're going to talk about the Holy Spirit next week. And we, we just finished a, a long series on the Holy Spirit. <coughs> Excuse me. And so next week, um, we're not going to go real in-depth on the statement of faith of, on the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about one specific aspect of the Holy Spirit. Just kind of give you a heads up on that. That's coming next week because we've covered very in-depth on the Holy Spirit. But there's one thing we want to talk about real in-depth next week. Um, But Jesus ascended into heaven. He's sitting right now at the right hand of the Father, and he's praying for you. Of all the things the Savior of the universe could be doing, he's praying for me. He's praying for me that this message comes out right. He's praying for me that that I remember what he prepared for me to say. He's praying for me that that I continue to serve him and be faithful. Man, he's praying for me. He's praying for you. That's what he does. G. Lastly, in our statement of faith, it says this about Jesus, that Jesus will return to earth someday as King of kings and Lord of lords. Notice it says someday, right? A lot of people think they've figured out when that's going to happen. A lot of people keep being wrong. Uh, So we don't know when this will happen. Could this be in our generation? Absolutely it could. Could this be many generations down the line? Absolutely it could. There's a lot of reasons why I think it's probably in the next generation or two or three. Um, I I think it's close, but every generation has thought that it was close. And so we hold that aspect loosely. We just know he's coming back. He is coming back. He will fulfill his promise. Acts chapter 2 says they were, were looking intently up into the sky as he has just ascended into heaven. When suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them, probably the same two that were at the tomb as the ladies came up to prepare Jesus' body. And verse 11 says, Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go, into heaven. He's coming back, y'all. When we take communion... Uh, towards the end of this series, I think it's week nine of this series, we're going to take communion as we talk about what we believe about communion. We take communion we declare that Jesus died for us, that he washed away our sins, but we also declare he's coming again. Communion looks backwards, but it also looks forwards. That Jesus isn't finished yet. That he's up to something. He's got a plan. He's coming back. So here's what I want to do in the the last few moments that we have, guys. I want to give you five additional statements about Jesus that aren't in our statement of faith, but, but things that I think are important as we center our faith on Christ, as we remember who he is and glorify him and worship him. The first one is this, is that Christianity is all about Jesus. Philippians 2 tells us that God exalted Jesus to the highest place, Verse 9. And gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, a day is coming where everybody's going to worship Jesus. We just have the opportunity to do it now out of our free will. You're going to worship him eventually. You're going to bow your knee to him eventually. He's offered us the chance to do it now freely, to do it out of love, to do it out of adoration. But we're all going to. But it says that God exalted him to the highest place. In other words, the Father chose for Jesus to be the exalted one who we center our worship. And when we offer up worship, yes, we worship the Father, and yes, we can worship the Holy Spirit, and all three of them love us, and all three of them are for us, and we're grateful for all three parts of the Trinity, but it's Jesus' name who we wear. Jesus is the one who was chosen for us to emulate, for us to worship, for us to adore. So all of Christianity centers on Jesus Christ. It's all about him. Secondly, Jesus flipped the religious script. Jesus came and he changed it all, right? We sing the song Jesus Paid It All, but we can sing Jesus Changed It All. Because before Jesus, there was a lot of similarity in all these different world religions, right? They all had their own little spin on things and their own little way that they said things. But ultimately, they all had one purpose, how to get a person to God, A lot of different paths, a lot of different ways that they laid out, but ultimately, every world religion, every faith was trying to tell people, how can I get to God? How can I get to heaven? How can I get to eternity? How can I do this? Jesus comes, and he says, you can't. See, Christianity is the only faith where God came to people for people instead of people trying to go to God radically changes everything instead of this whole series of steps and effort of trying to live a good life, of of trying to have enough love, of trying to get rid of enough sin, of trying to do enough good things. Jesus came and he canceled all that out and he said, you'll never do enough good things. You'll never attend church enough. You'll never get rid of enough sin. You'll never be able to get to me so I'm coming for you. Completely flipped the religious script. Every world religion tries to tell us how to get to God. Christianity says, no, God came for you. Praise Jesus. He came for me. See, every other faith was about what people must do to get to God. But Jesus comes institutes Christianity which is about what God has done to get to people see my faith is not about what I've done and it's not about what I do Don't get me wrong, God's called me to do some things. God's called me to follow him, but that decision to do what God has called me to do doesn't determine whether I'm in or out. He's not weighing my acts and saying, yep, you're good enough, or no, you're not. He's applying Jesus's goodness to my account, and now he says, because Jesus has saved you, because he has washed you, because his spirit has filled you, now go out and serve me. Now go out and glorify me. Now go out and tell people about me. Because I've empowered you to do so. Third thing you need to know about Jesus is that Jesus' name is offensive. It's offensive. See, we live in a culture where it's okay to talk about God. It's normal to shout out God. It's normal to shout out faith. Man, everybody talks about their faith, about their spirituality, about God. Right, It's easy to talk about those things, but it's offensive to talk about Jesus. Why is Jesus offensive? Because Jesus is exclusive. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is offensive to the world. We live in a world of inclusivity where there's many paths, in many ways. And so the name of Jesus is offensive. But here's the amazing thing about Jesus. He is radically exclusive. He says there's one way. But he's also radically inclusive. He says, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I don't care about your past. I don't care what you've done. I don't care about your social status. I don't care about your tax bracket. I don't care about your color, your ethnicity, your language, your education. There is no prerequisite for inclusion in the kingdom of God except simply calling on the name of Jesus. He's offensive because he's radically exclusive. But my gosh, he is the most inclusive person who's ever lived. He extends grace to all who choose to call upon his name. Why is it important for us to know that Jesus' name is offensive? Because there's a lot of pressure to not use Jesus' name. And I think we should use Jesus' name. I'm I'm crazy about this. Like, I don't ever want to get legalistic about this, but I'm crazy about this. I'm passionate about this, down to the point that that I try to teach everybody when we pray to pray in the name of Jesus. We we even do these silly little things that we've concocted, like, in your son's name we pray. Man, the power's in the name of Jesus. No, I'm not saying that if you pray in the son's name that God doesn't hear your prayer. I'm not saying that. I'm saying there's power in the name of Jesus, so let's use the power. Let's not trip over and in your name we pray. right? No, in Jesus' name. Why? Because Jesus' name is offensive. At the name of Jesus, demons have to flee, so they're going to do everything they can to keep that name inside of us and keep it from getting out. So use the name of Jesus. Don't give in to the pressure. Don't back down. Jesus' name is offensive, but Jesus' name is powerful. Amen. Number four, Jesus came as our sacrifice and as our example. We've talked a lot about the sacrifice already. He paid the price for my sins, praise God. But he also came as my example, so he came to show me the way. The Bible says that Jesus fulfilled the law. He lived up to every aspect of the law. Number one, so now I don't have to, so it's been canceled for me. But he also did it to show me, come follow me. Pick up your cross and follow me. Emulate me. Imitate me. So we look to Jesus, number one, as our Savior, as our sacrifice. But number two, we also look to him as our example. This is the one we want to be like. The one we want to love the world like. This is the one we want to teach like. This is the one we want to be like. Lastly, most importantly, Jesus wants a relationship with you. Again, He didn't just come to pay the price for your sin, which would be so much more than enough, so much more than I deserve. So much more than I could ever fathom or ask for that he would cancel my debt. But he took it a step so much further. He said, I want to know you. And I want you to know me. See, oftentimes we define this thing, Christianity, as a relationship and not a religion. I think there's a lot of truth in that statement. Because generally speaking, religion is a list of, of man-made rules trying to get to God. Christianity is the belief, the acceptance that God came for us. That he wants to live in us. He wants to live with us. In fact, a day is coming where Jesus is going to return and he's going to rule and reign with us. Not just with us. With those brothers and sisters in China who are being persecuted right now. With our brothers and sisters from Nigeria. Our brothers and sisters from Colombia, our brothers and sisters across the world, we're going to rule with rain, with Jesus together. In fact, it says it's a great multitude that no one can count. From every tribe, every tongue, every language, every ethnicity, every part of the world, ruling with Jesus together. It's going to be an amazing day. But you don't have to wait till that day to get to know him. He wants a relationship with you now. He wants to reveal himself to you today. He wants to love you today, to empower you today, to be with you today. So he gives us these pathways into his presence, right? He gives us the opportunity to to gather together. He says when we get together, he shows up. He gives us the opportunity to read his word. He says all scripture is God breathed. And when we open the word of God, he's breathing life into us. It's his presence. He gives us the opportunity to pray Man, when we pray, we get to go boldly before the throne of God because of the grace and the mercy that's been given to us. He gives us the opportunity to worship. And he says, I will inhabit the praises of my people. When I praise, God shows up. He wants relationship with you. So the question today is, do we have some misbeliefs about Jesus? If so, let's, let's center on the word. Let's believe what the word says. If there's some things that are uncomfortable, man, that you're not sure of, man, dig into the word. What does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible say about Jesus? Find out what you believe. For most of us, these probably aren't a whole ton of controversial statements. For most of us, we probably receive these things in faith. So the application for you, if that's you, is locate your relationship with Jesus today. Are you close? Praise God. Keep chasing him. Are you far? Are you distant? Is it cold? If it is, he offers you today the opportunity to change that. In fact, Revelation 3.20, he puts it like this. He says, behold, here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. I believe Jesus is knocking today. He's knocking at the door of unbelievers who have never received him, but I think he's also knocking at the door of Christians who are lukewarm today, of Christians who are, who are just kind of going through the motions. He's saying, open up and let me in. Give me more of you because i got more blessing for you. i got more benefit for you. I've got more life for you. I've got more for you. Open up. He says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. He doesn't say, I'll come in and save them. doesn't say, I'll come in and forgive them. He says, I'll come in and we're going to throw down on some food together. You know who you eat with? The people you like. Remember being in school hoping you had somebody you could sit with at lunch? Remember that first day of school and just like wandering in the lunchroom praying somebody else was lonely enough to sit with you? Jesus wants to eat lunch with you. Why? Because we eat with the people we love. And he loves you. He chooses you. He wants relationship with you. Praise God.